G'day and welcome to the Bernie Gannon Show. Thank you for your company and for making last week's episode the most watched regular show on The Good Source since this platform was launched earlier this year. Please help to spread the word by liking and sharing this show and I greatly appreciate your ongoing support and interest. We are a team and together we fight fake news. I can't do it without you. We have a big show today. The ABC has lost the plot again, again, and there's another attack on our national anthem, this time by a supposedly conservative state premier. And we again finish with Goose of the Week. But first, the US election. Despite the mainstream media spin, the US election is not over, and Joe Biden has not been elected. The fat lady has not sung yet. The election is headed to the courts. In fact, it is already in a number of courts and it will be decided there. I don't think anyone can really say with any confidence who will win. The facts will be up to the lawyers to argue and the decisions will be made by judges. What we do know is that this election did not turn out the way the pollsters and the mainstream media predicted. In fact, the opinion polls were so wrong again that it really does look like they were part of a concerted voter suppression effort to demoralise Trump supporters and help Joe Biden win. It's either that or the pollsters are just very, very bad at their jobs. But they do get paid a lot of money by media organisations which have basically become cheerleaders for the Democratic Party. And these outlets have kept the money flowing despite the polling mistakes of the past. So it really does seem likely that the real purpose of polling is to create fake news. It's as simple as that because it is now clear that fake news is the only product mainstream polling outlets have been selling, not just this year, but for the better part of the last decade. Who can forget the polling failures of Brexit, Trump 2016 and the last Australian election? For six months, all of the reputable polls, the ones published by the mainstream media outlets, said Joe Biden was going to win by a margin of 8 to 12 points. This led to frenzied speculation that not only would Joe Biden be president, but the Democrats would also increase their majority in the House of Congress and gain control of the Senate. However, neither of these things happened. They did not even come close. As we speak, President Trump has at least 72 million votes. That's 10 million more votes than he received in 2016, despite facing four years of relentless media criticism 24-7. That really is quite astonishing. By now, everyone is supposed to know that Donald Trump is worse than Hitler, yet more people, many more people, voted for him this year than in 2016. Now, Donald Trump does trail Joe Biden according to official figures, 47.5%, to 50.9%, a margin of 3.4%. Without California, an overwhelmingly Democratic state, Trump would be winning the popular vote. It means that the polls were way off. And it is now clear that the Democrats not only will not control the Senate, but they have lost seats in Congress. At the moment, they have certainly lost 11 of them. That number may even rise higher. On the other hand, while well, the Democrats' Senate and Congress campaigns were complete disasters, Joe Biden somehow has emerged from the rubble to lead the presidential vote. That's also astonishing when you think about it. And many people have, 
and found that it does just not compute. As is the fact that Biden amassed more votes than even Barack Obama could muster in his 2008 landslide victory. Yeah, you did. You heard that right. The guy who stayed in his basement and mumbles about Trumezelpine and Batakafka is more popular than Barack Obama. Well, you might think you know Joe Biden's platform pretty well by now, not that there is a platform, but you're pretty sure he's gonna pack the courts. He might ban fracking or he might not, you don't really know. In fact, you have no right to know. So just shut up and vote. He's not orange, therefore you're required to vote for him. At a rally in Michigan on Saturday, Biden muddied the waters for the very first time. He announced his support for something called Batakothkar. In fact, he said it's a fundamental human right. Barack and I think it's a right for people to have bad health care. Got that? It's a right for people to have bad health care. And if you don't have bad health care soon, Joe Biden will make sure that you do. That's his pledge to you. But giving every American bad health isn't easy. Joe Biden knows that. So he's going to mobilize a pressure campaign to get it done. What kind of campaign to get bad health care? <laughs> Joe Biden has thought a lot about it. Here's his solution. Look, I'll do what he's unable to do. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. Joe Biden's going to do that. Donald Trump can do that. Donald Trump can't even pronounce. But Joe Biden can. Listen again. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. Yeah, he'll lead an effective strategy to do that, whatever it is. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to laugh and then shake your head. But as each day goes by, it is now clear that the media's opinion polls made as much sense as the Joe Biden speech. Their sole purpose was to confuse. They were fake news and they should never be believed again. Never. Amazingly, if Joe Biden does win this election, he will become the first man to defeat a sitting president who actually became more popular during his term in office. Over the past century, a number of presidents have been re-elected despite losing support. Barack Obama lost 5 million votes in 2012. He still won the election. Roosevelt lost votes two elections in a row. 1940 and 1944, but he still won the prize. A number of other presidents lost popularity and lost elections as a result. George Bush Sr. in 1996, Carter in 1980, and Hoover in 1932. Donald Trump, on the other hand, just increased his turnout by 10 million votes and lost. That's so incredible that it's almost too hard to believe. In fact, many people don't believe it. I don't. You cannot tell me that Biden won this election. Biden actually lost almost 20% in the Democratic stronghold state of New York compared to Hillary Clinton in 2016. In the usually heavily Democratic voting state of Illinois, Biden's vote was also down compared to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Yet right next door in Wisconsin, Biden somehow managed to surge by 18%. And it was even more in Michigan. For those who follow this election, these states also had other similarities. Both Wisconsin and Michigan counted mail-in ballots after election day votes. And both of these states miraculously discovered in the dead of night when no one was looking 
that Biden received enough votes uh, of mail-in votes to win those states. As far as miracles go, this is up there with raising people from the dead. But Biden did that too. Oh, this city has a sad history of voter fraud. After all, Joe Frazier is still voting here. Kind of hard since he died five years ago, but Joe continues to vote. If I recall correctly, Joe was a Republican, so maybe I shouldn't complain. But we should go see if Joe is voting Republican or Democrat now from the grave. Also, Will Smith's father has voted here twice since he died. I don't know how he votes because his vote is secret. In Philadelphia, they keep the votes of dead people secret. At least. In fact, there are so many examples of dead people voting that satirical websites are now running articles claiming that Joe Biden is being considered for sainthood for raising millions from the dead to vote. Now, there are multiple lawsuits underway in many states regarding voter fraud. The Trump campaign is also arguing that measures to increase mail-in voting, such as the removal of signature verification in some states, were unconstitutional. Who knows where these lawsuits will end? Donald Trump's lawyers face a difficult prospect of not only convincing the courts that fraud occurred, but they will also need to convince the court that there was enough fraud to change the results. The first part will not be too difficult to prove. There are now hundreds of sworn affidavits from witnesses attesting to fraud and electoral irregularities. The second part will be far harder to achieve. The 1982 elections in Illinois are worth revisiting. 65 people were charged with electoral fraud following those elections, all but two of them were convicted. But this occurred long after the election, and even though it is now estimated that up to 100,000 votes were fraudulent, 10% of the votes in Chicago. But the election result was never overturned. It still stands. Electoral fraud won the day. It's also important to understand that the 100,000 fraudulent votes cast in that election were not in one big, easy-to-find pile. They were small numbers of dead voters uh, here, the votes are stolen from elderly and disabled people there, as well as impersonation of absentee voters in other places and other issues. It is now clear that all of this occurred, but at the time, in the days after the election, it was difficult to detect or prove, even though it all smelt wrong. Right now, Donald Trump is in that position. It smells wrong. In fact, it is blindingly obvious. You can see it too. MSNBC reports on its webpage that 89 million mail-in ballots were requested, but it also reports that more than 100 million mail-in and early in-person ballots were returned. Those figures don't add up. Nor does the fact that in states like Florida, a swing state predicted to go to Biden overwhelmingly by the polls, where mail-in ballots were counted before election day votes, Trump won. But in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Pennsylvania, where mail-in ballots were counted after election day votes and where Republican scrutinies were kept out of the counting rooms, the results were very different. To put it simply, Joe Biden's victories correlate directly with the way votes were counted. That does not pass the pub test, even if fraud cannot be proven. On the surface, it is obvious that Biden's victories came in states that counted votes differently. It's no wonder that so many people, myself included, do not accept the results. But the media and Big Tech are doing their very best to shut down 
any discussion about any of this. Twitter has censored over 300,000 tweets about the election. The media refuses to cover Donald Trump's lawsuits or to even interview those who have sworn affidavits on oath. Instead, journalists rabbit on about a lack of evidence while ignoring it all the time. The media is colluding with those who engage in electoral fraud when it should instead be looking at the patterns now emerging and diving deep to find out how big this problem really is. Donald Trump is entitled to take this to court and we should all hope that the truth is revealed. He certainly should not be written off yet. There is a long way to go in this battle. Joe Biden has already been hailed the uniter in chief by an adoring media class. I said at the outset, I wanted to represent this campaign to represent and look like America. We've done that. Now that's what I want the administration to look like and act like. For all those of you who voted for President Trump, I understand the disappointment tonight. I've lost a couple times myself, but now let's give each other a chance. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies, they are Americans. They are Americans. The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap and a time to sow and a time to heal. This is the time to heal. But while those words sound nice, the Democrats have zero intention of following them. Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted last week, is anyone archiving these Trump sycophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future? AOC called for a list of anyone who worked with Trump and that list is being compiled. Harry Severgun, a former Democratic National Committee press secretary, stated on Twitter the same day that those employees who hired anyone who worked for Donald Trump should face consequences. So much for healing. He also promoted the Trump Accountability Project. This website listed the names of over 4,000 people who have worked in some way for the Trump administration. This website stated that America must Never forget those who work for Trump. It even targeted those who voted for him. It had a database to search for the names of anyone associated with Donald Trump. This is chilling stuff. It is the kind of thing that goes on before political purges. Now, it is true that this website has been shut down following criticism as a show of good faith. Time to heal and all that kind of stuff. But the people behind it have not changed. They have made it very clear that they intend to destroy anyone opposed to them, and they might soon be in power, depending on the results of Donald Trump's court cases. For a brief moment, the US had conquered COVID, thanks to Joe Biden. Random strangers pass bottles of champagne through crowded streets, which just days before were too dangerous to even venture out into. All of these people had to vote by mail due to the pandemic, but the coronavirus is nothing if not political. 
clearly it doesn't affect democratic street parties but it does impact things like thanksgiving day so americans are now being told that they must celebrate outside and cannot sing Today marks two weeks until Thanksgiving Day, and officials worry that holiday gatherings could add to the recent rise in coronavirus cases in Massachusetts and across the country. Nick Giovanni is live in Boston this morning with the latest guidelines and what you need to do now, Nick. Kate, two weeks out means now is the time to quarantine if you plan to do so before heading out for the holiday. Now, the CDC points out that celebrating virtually or keeping the meal to just members of your own household obviously poses the lowest risk for spreading COVID-19. That said though, if you do plan to have people over for the holiday, CDC suggests you consider the area where guests are coming from and the number of COVID cases in their community. Think about the size of your dinner party. Make sure there's enough room for everyone to stay six feet apart and require everyone to wear masks, wash their hands frequently. You know the drill on that front. On top of the basics though, take a look at these tips. The CDC suggests you encourage guests to avoid singing or shouting. Keep the music down to help that cause. Designate one person to serve all the food while wearing a mask. Don't make it a potluck style meal. Don't let your pets interact with people from outside of your household and eat outside if you can or increase ventilation as much as you can by either opening windows or by running your central air if you have that or heat on uh, constant circulation. According to the CDC, all attendees should have a plan for where to store masks as well while eating or drinking. Their suggestion is that you use a dry, breathable bag, perhaps paper or mesh fabric. Live in Boston, Nick Giovanni, WBZ this morning. So there you have it. In Biden's America, the only party you can have is one which celebrates him. Fun times. This week, the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force report into alleged war crimes in Afghanistan will be released, although parts of it will be redacted. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has warned Australians to brace themselves for bad news. The Prime Minister has warned Australians to prepare for some difficult and disturbing news about the nation's war heroes. Scott Morrison today announced a special investigator will be appointed to prosecute alleged war crimes by our special forces in Afghanistan. Afghanistan was Australia's longest war and for much of it, elite special forces were on the front line. But their heroism has been tarnished by accusations of misconduct and war crimes. I think it's fair to say, in some cases, straight murder. New South Wales Judge Major General Paul Brereton spent four years investigating at least 55 serious allegations. His report was handed to the Chief of the Defence Force last week. Both the Prime Minister and Defence Minister have been briefed on it. This will be difficult and hard news for Australians, I can assure you. In advance of the report's release, two new agencies have been flagged. An Office of Special Investigator will be established to prosecute alleged war crimes, with any cases heard in a civil court. And an independent oversight panel will be set up to ensure defence follows through on the report's recommendations. There are a number of things to say about this situation. Firstly, the inquiry itself has been problematic. It took longer than the entirety of World War One, It dragged on longer than the war crimes trials against the Japanese at the end of World War II. The inquiry advertised in Afghanistan for informants, and it's more than likely that our enemies over there have taken full advantage of this situation. It's akin in many ways to the Get Pell scheme launched by the Victorian police before a single allegation was made against Cardinal George Pell. And at the end of it, maybe serious allegations against a dozen personnel or so, out of the tens of thousands of Australians who deployed to Afghanistan. 
Let's keep that fact in perspective. Secondly, this inquiry is the wrong process to investigate allegations of war crimes, which is why we are now in the farcical situation of one inquiry, and it is not even the first inquiry leading to yet another inquiry. The IGADF cannot make any findings of criminal guilt. The rules of evidence are very different to those required in a criminal court. As such, all parties deserve the presumption of innocence. Yet no doubt, over the next week, there'll be plenty of media outlets all too willing to rush to judgment. It needs to be remembered that after 10 years of allegations, no charges have been laid and no one has been found guilty of anything. As such, in many ways, this inquiry has been a complete waste of time. And this is entirely the fault of senior officers, including the Chief of Defence Force. War crimes should be prosecuted. And some of this re the reports from this inquiry are disturbing. But trial by media, which is what this has effectively been, is unacceptable. Evidence that Australian soldiers committed war crimes should have been referred to prosecutors long ago. And those accused should have been afforded an opportunity to defend themselves rather than facing years of what may end up being nothing more than defamatory slander that has tarnished their reputations. We owe our serving personnel much better treatment than this. Thirdly, there can be no confidence that this process has examined the role of senior commanders and whether they may have enabled any wrongdoing through command failures. For instance, the current Chief of Defence Force, Angus Campbell, served in the SAS early in his career and was then commander of JTF 633 in 2011 and 2012, when many of the allegations in this report are supposed to have occurred. The current Chief of Army, Rick Burr, commanded the SAS early in its deployment to Afghanistan. Both held senior positions afterwards in the Army that would have involved them in some way in the decisions to deploy over and over and over again SAS personnel to Afghanistan. Now, as I understand it, the Chief of Defence Force will decide what parts of this report can be made public. That's not a recipe for confidence. That's the recipe for a whitewash of any responsibility he and other senior commanders have for this mess. Fourthly, this question must also be asked. If any of the allegations are proven to be true, why didn't Angus Campbell act earlier? After all, it seems that some of those involved in serious allegations surrounding the execution of prisoners or even murder of civilians a decade ago are still serving in the army. Yet, they still haven't even been charged. But consider this, in 2013, Angus Campbell became directly involved in the decision to sack me from the Army Reserve for my views on the Mardi Gras. That's right, the Mardi Gras. Defence even went to court to defend its ability to sack me for those views. It argued that the CDF was legally entitled to remove me for my behaviour, regardless of the fact that it was actually perfectly lawful behaviour, just that the CDF didn't like it. Now, this may come as a surprise to some people, but criticising the Mardi Gras is not a war crime. In fact, much of what occurs at the Mardi Gras, such as public nudity or the promotion of drugs, is actually against the law and even army policies. It should be criticised, but Angus Campbell didn't care about any of that. He was almost the first person on board to sack the Bernie Gaynor train. In fact, in many ways, he started that train and he did so before any of the disciplinary processes used against me had even been completed. So much for natural justice or procedural fairness. 
just for the record, and I love saying this, not a single allegation thrown at me by people like Angus Campbell was substantiated. Angus Campbell was wrong, but I was still sacked anyway. But this does prove that Campbell could have taken action to sack those involved in alleged war crimes if he wanted to. But four years after this inquiry started, all we've got is another one. This conclusion is obvious. When it comes to politically correct crimes, Angus Campbell acts swiftly. But when it comes to allegations of actual war crimes, Angus Campbell needed another inquiry to go on for four years to tell him what to do. That's insane. As I said earlier, if there is evidence that war crimes were committed, you have the soldiers charged and if found guilty, sentenced. It's that simple. Fifthly, all of this points to a senior hierarchy, which is far more concerned with social justice wars than real wars, which is probably part of the problem here and which undoubtedly will lead to other problems. Mark my words. We're about to hear a lot about how the SAS is too masculine and too patriarchal, too full of microaggressions and unconscious bias. Toxic masculinity will be blamed for any war crimes instead of the truth. The SAS has been overused and allowed to effectively separate itself from the army. That is a command failure and people like Angus Campbell are responsible for it. In fact, Political correctness is part of the reason all of this has occurred. For instance, the government has been loath to place line infantry units in positions where they may take casualties. Now that units like 1RAR are being filled with females, this will only get worse. It is hard to see 1RAR ever deploying again as a battle group under current circumstances. This will only lead to increased pressure on the SAS. Yet we will hear calls for the SAS to be disbanded or radically revolutionised. What has already been done to uh, improve the, the culture in the relevant part of the Defence Force? And also there's been some suggestion that maybe it would be a positive move to disband the SAS and uh, reorganise things. Can you rule that out or do you think that has any merit? Well, I'll allow the Minister, obviously, to deal with the, uh, the progress that has been made there. But I would simply say this, Michelle, this will be a, a long process. Um, this is the next stage. And I'm not about to preempt or prejudge any actions um, in any way, shape or form that the CDF would think was appropriate in responding to the report. That's his job. There will be calls to water down training courses so that females can pass and demands that they be given leadership roles in any revolutionised SAS. Feminist academics will clamour to revamp the SAS, and not just because of the principle of it, it's a lucrative business. Samantha Cromvotes, who was initially called in to investigate the SAS, has been paid over $7 million by defence for cultural change programs since 2012. That's a fact. It's also outrageous and a complete waste of money. None of this has improved defence capability. None of it helps defend Australia. And now it's clear it has not even helped this process. It's only delayed taking any action at all. And the fact that senior commanders got a feminist academic involved in this in the first place says a lot about them. They are not fit for the jobs that they hold. Finally, before we move off from this topic, I want to quote to you from Volume 1 to Benghazi which forms part of Australia's official history of World War II. This is what it states. As these two stood watching some of the prisoners being rounded up, an Italian bobbed up from one of the pits, 
put a rifle to his shoulder and shot Green through the chest. He then dropped the rifle, put up his hands and climbed out of the post, smiling broadly. An angry Australian threw him back into the post and emptied his brain gun into him. At the same time, others demanded of McFarlane that they should be allowed to bayonet all the other prisoners. But McFarlane, now the only officer left in the company, forbade them to take revenge and he was obeyed. Was it a war crime for the Australian soldier to empty his brain gun into a surrendering Italian prisoner? You betcha it was. Should it be prosecuted? No, even though it was the wrong thing to do. But the officer on the spot restored order, but it would have destroyed unit morale and cohesion to prosecute a soldier who reacted violently to the provocation of a murderous, smiling and surrendering Italian soldier. War is messy. We need to remember that this week when those who put themselves on the line to die for this nation are destroyed in the media. Last Monday, ABC's Four Corners ran a Me Too episode on Australia's Parliament House. Allegedly, Alan Tudge, the Minister for Population, had an affair with a staffer, and so did the Attorney General, Christian Porter, according to the report. Maybe he had more than one. Both married with children, Rochelle Miller now admits she and Minister Tudge were having an affair. She was terrified they would be found out. I was walking with Alan and I was chatting to him and I, I intentionally dropped back because I didn't want to walk in with him. I mean, I wasn't his guest, I wasn't his partner, and I didn't want to be on camera. And he stopped and he turned around and he said, no, I want you to walk in with me. And, 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 and I was really surprised by that. I have a feeling that my appearance had a bearing on why Alan would want to walk in with me on his arm and I felt at the time a lot like an ornament and that I was being used as an ornament. Spare me, please. Unlike most people in the world, it seems I think a politician who can't be trusted to keep their vow to their wife is unfit to be in parliament. They certainly can't be trusted to keep their political promises to the rest of Australia. If the allegations are true, then both Tudge and Porter should lose their pre-selections for the next election. But let's not pretend that this is what this was all about. Louise Milligan from the ABC, whose main claim to fame is running the now discredited PR campaign against Cardinal Pell, doesn't care if politicians have affairs with staffers. If she did, she could fill an entire year's worth of Four Corner Stories on the activities of the Labor Party. And for what it's worth, I think these failings on all side of politics are newsworthy. If the media did report this stuff factually, then we'll probably get a better bunch of politicians. We'll probably also get a better bunch of journalists because, you know, quite often they are in the same beds too. But Louise Milligan hasn't reported on the Labor Party and she won't. She's only interested in revealing the embarrassing stories of one side of politics. It's blatantly hypocritical and reveals the naked truth about her as much as about the blokes she tried to target. Louise Milligan is a disgrace and her efforts to somehow pretend that the women in these consensual affairs are somehow victims takes the Me Too movement to new heights of cringeworthiness. Now, in some ways it is true they are victims. Any woman who gives herself up to a man who won't marry her is a victim. But, and this is the important part, she's chosen to be a victim. She's as much to blame for the pain that inevitably follows an affair as the man. That's a fact. 
If this is the best investigative reporting we're gonna get out of the ABC, the government should sell it off now before it becomes completely worthless. Speaking of crappy politicians who've had affairs, Gladys Berejiklian was in the news this week for all the wrong reasons. Again, she wants to change the words of the national anthem. Gladys Berejiklian has also called for the national anthem to be changed. She wants a discussion on whether the lyrics should be altered to acknowledge Australia's Indigenous history. Samantha Brett has more. Sam, take us through the proposal. Well, the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian has weighed in on this very controversial debate. She wants to see the lyrics of the national anthem change. Currently, they read, we are young and free. She wants to see it change to, we are one and free. She says this will better reflect our rich Indigenous history. We have a very proud Indigenous culture of tens of thousands of years on this continent. So I, I guess to say we are young and free ignores that. And I think it would be appropriate for us to acknowledge that we are all united. Spare me again. Gladys Berejiklian must be stupid. Anyone who thinks changing the anthem for one group of people to show unity does not understand what the word united means. And anyone who thinks that the demands to change the national anthem will just go away if one word is changed is simply delusional. The fact that this suggestion is coming from a supposedly conservative politician's shows how the loser mentality has become a habit inside the Liberal Party. It is the same mindset that had Liberals decide that supporting gay civil unions was a solution that would end cause for gay marriage. Look where that got us. Now we have gay marriage as well as pronoun police and demands that kindergarten kids be taught that gender is a choice. That was a massive mistake. Let's be frank, Gladys Berejiklian is not conservative. She betrays conservative Australians. Instead, she's jumped aboard the PC bandwagon in a desperate attempt to end scrutiny of her own failings. That's all this is. It's that time of week again where we laugh at the biggest numpties going around. Once again, it's your choice. Use your power wisely, my friends, to bestow this award. Now, the first nominee is Joe Biden. He's not even president yet, but he's ringing in the changes. One of the very first things he did after getting the nomination from the media networks was to announce Sean Scally would be on the transition team. Now, no one knows if Sean Scally is a man or a woman. In fact, I bet Scally doesn't even know him or herself. But Scally's new job will be to advise Joe Biden on the military because he is, well, transgender. I'm sure the People's Republic of China is quivering right now. That'll teach him. You know it makes sense, that is to nominate Joe Biden for the Goose of the Week. Our second nominee is Dr. Naomi Wolf. People won't think that Naomi Wolf is smart because she has a doctorate of philosophy from Oxford University. But actually, Dr. Wolf is the opposite of smart and you'll see. Watch this first. We're sworn in come January and we have coronavirus and the flu combining, which many scientists have said is a real possibility. Would you be prepared to shut this country down again? I would be prepared to do whatever it takes to save lives because we cannot get the country moving until we control the virus. 
That is the fundamental flaw of this administration's thinking to begin with. In order to keep the country running and moving and the economy growing and people employed, you have to fix the virus. You have to deal with the virus. So if the scientists say, shut it down? I would shut it down. I would listen to the scientists. That was Joe Biden back in August telling the world he supports lockdowns. And this is Dr. Naomi Wolf on Twitter this week. If I'd known Biden was open to lockdowns, as he now states, which is something historically unprecedented in any pandemic and a terrifying practice, one that won't ever end because elites love it, I would never have voted for him. Naomi Wolf would never have voted for Joe Biden if she'd known he supported lockdowns. I don't know what election she was watching, but the rest of the world knew Biden supported lockdowns, well, because that's what he campaigned on. If Biden does end up winning, it will be the triumph of stupidity. Well done, Naomi Wolf. You're a moron. Our third nominee is New Zealand. Yes, the entire nation. Ariel Keel has just been crowned Miss Intercontinental New Zealand 2020. Now, Keel happens to be a man, and not from New Zealand, from the Philippines. So well done, New Zealand, for letting a foreign gay dude represent your women. You thoroughly deserve this nomination. And apologies to Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, you missed out on a nomination this week, even though the first thing you announced upon being re-elected as mayor of the US city with the most days of Antifa riots this year was a ban on gendered language. I'm sure that won't solve any of your problems and it would normally be enough to take out this award. But the stupid has risen to such great heights in the past seven days that all I can say is try harder next time. So who should be crowned Goose of the Week from our three worthy geese? Joe Biden for appointing a military advisor because he's transgender, Naomi Wolf for accidentally voting for the guy who wants more lockdowns, or New Zealand for sending a gay Filipino to represent them at Miss Universe. Let me know in the comments. The power to bestow this award is in your capable hands. Thanks for watching the Bernie Gannon Show on The Good Source. Make sure you sign up to The Good Source today. If big tech does decide to zap us, email will be the way we let you know where we go to fight fake news next. And you can help us to do that too by sharing this video and clicking on the thumbs up icon below it. And if you have any ideas or suggestions, please leave a comment. I wanna know what you think and where we can improve. The Bernard Gaynor Show is a production of The Good Source, hosted by Bernard Gaynor. To watch, listen to, or read more content without the SJW PC fact filter, visit goodsource.news, good S-A-U-C-E dot news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show.